Hi, I'm Chris Mayer, and on this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I know that in the previous podcast, I said that this podcast would be about answering questions submitted by the listeners, and in fact, I have recorded that podcast, but I couldn't let this day go by. This day, the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Sitting on my desk in front of me is a small piece of concrete, gray, sort of flat on one side, otherwise kind of formless. Nothing really special about it. As a matter of fact, it doesn't look altogether that much different than the uh, cement patching on which I fixed my sidewalk recently. But it is different in one very significant way. As you might guess, it's a piece of the Berlin Wall. This small piece of concrete pretty much represents the center of my universe of, for me and for many other people, that our lives revolved around for, well, probably until this present day. I was five when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. After that, the Kennedy assassination, the beginnings of the Vietnam War, the space race, uh, are finally landing on the moon, the end of the Vietnam War, with the protests which we now know were instigated by the Russians themselves. These were all different lines of operations of that same Cold War, what we might call today asymmetric campaigns of that war. My first ten years in the Army was fighting the unbloody battles of that war, patrolling the east-west German border and preparing to defend that line should the unthinkable ever happen. And I remember the excitement and the hope when Reagan made that speech. And then, a little more than two years later, the surprise when that came to be in the middle of the night of November 9, 1989, while I was deployed close to that border. My life after that has, like so many others, been responding to or trying to shape the aftermath of that war. But what does any of that have to do with the ancient art of modern warfare? Well, a Cold War, the Cold War, was still a war. It was still the application of the four elements of national power to achieve a strategic political objective. It still involved or included the use of military force along with other elements of national power. This included varying degrees of risk and occasional open warfare, usually by or against proxies, but warfare nonetheless. It's useful, I think, to analyze this grand strategy of the Cold War in the light of Sun Tzu and a little bit of Clausewitz, too. Although the United States ended World War II as the world superpower, something unlike anyone the world had seen since Rome and probably not even what Rome could aspire to, but nonetheless, philosophically, by nature, the United States was still isolationist. For the Soviet Union, their objectives continued their pre-World War II goal of the worldwide victory of Soviet socialism. While we were happy if the Soviet Union did not expand its malignancy beyond where it was when Nazi Germany fell. We reluctantly adopted that strategy because we had large immigrant populations from Poland, Hungary, the Ukraine, Lithuania, and other Baltic states, peoples who had fought very hard for their freedoms after World War I and were now completely occupied by a totalitarian Soviet state. 
In any case, the two goals, one of containment and the other of world domination, were incompatible and strategic victory for one side would be the end of the other. The Soviet strategy was fundamentally offensive, and although they could attack or make motions against the West when and where they pleased, as long as they didn't threaten the West core area, the United States and its allies were essentially playing defense, and we could afford to wait. The Soviet activity, however, meant for a prolonged war, and, as Sun Tzu noted, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged warfare, and, if victory is long in coming, the men's weapons will grow dull and their ardor will be dampened. The Soviets were, in fact, committed to a long-term strategy that, quite seriously, the economy of the communist states was not prepared for nor able to sustain. When actual shooting wars happened, they happened at the peripheries, never affecting the key players' home areas. They were what Clausewitz described as diversions. All in all, though, as Sun Tzu pointed out 2,500 years ago, the Soviets could not keep up that offensive game forever. Eventually, they reached what Clausewitz would describe as a strategic culminating point. And at that point, things changed, not only for the Soviet Union, but also for the West. I remember reading a book in the early 1970s by Andrei Almarik called Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? He believed that it was imminently to collapse under the weight of its own internal inconsistencies and the only thing holding it up was Western subsidies. That changed in 1981 when Ronald Reagan became president. When asked about his strategy for the Soviet Union, he said, It's simple. We win. They lose. This strategy included Sun Tzu's notions of attacking the enemy's plans, understanding what his strategy was and trying to dislocate it, to separate him from his allies, which began to happen under President Nixon in 1969 with the opening to China, and continued with President Reagan as he also continued to take diplomatic and military means to separate the Soviet Union from its vassal states. This aligns with Sun Tzu's notion of preventing the junction of the enemy's military forces. In the end, in 1992, when the final peace agreement with the, Uni with the United Germany was able to be signed, the United States, its Western allies, under the strategy developed by Ronald Reagan, was able to achieve Sun Tzu's ultimate goal of having achieved a victory without fighting. Today, 30 years later, I look back and look at my middle son, who is now turning 18 and getting ready to vote, and I realized that his birth is as far removed from the fall of the Berlin Wall as my own birth was from the end of World War II. This gave me something to think about. To me, growing up, World War II seemed like ancient history. I mean, I couldn't even imagine anybody. I didn't even know anybody who had fought in World War II. And I imagine that my middle son, and especially my younger son, uh, must feel the same way, must have that same disassociation from the Cold War. For me and my generation, that meant that we could embrace the Germans and the Japanese with no emotional baggage or animosity. We could work with them as allies 
to face a common existential, philosophical, and military threat. But what does the end of the strategic struggle a generation ago mean for my son's generation? What does it mean for the new generation of voters today? For my son and his generation, my concern is that the chunk of concrete on my desk is just that, an old chunk of concrete and nothing more. President Reagan's speech in front of the Berlin Wall in June of 1987 had more to say than just Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Many of the things he said are still important to us today. Yes. 